But the way of escape is what I've been talking about. And of course, the basic text is where we should start. You can open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. He always makes a way of escape. You should remember that the word temptation, as I've said no fewer than 1,200 times uh, over the years, the the word used for temptation doesn't simply mean an enticement to sin. It does mean that, but much more than that, the Greek word means a putting to proof by experience of adversity. And we know from other passages in James, for instance, uh, that this experience of adversity uh, isn't being, isn't something you're being tested in from God. It is a trying of your faith. And it's the enemy of your soul that's behind it. The truth of the unseen realm peppers the Bible The Bible is a revelation of the unseen realm. If you think it's getting a little spooky to talk about the devil and demons, angels, war in the heavens, you know, a conflict ongoing in that realm that we can't see, if you think that's a little too too much for you to embrace, then I don't know how you became a Christian because you have to believe some things you can't see or rationally confirm. But the Bible is a revelation of the unseen realm. And that's where our challenges in life originate. It is the enemy of your soul trying your faith, putting pressure on your faith. Adversity actually is defined by Strong's as pressure. He's putting pressure on your belief system by generating circumstance counter to what God says about you in Christ. Counter to what the Word says your covenant makes provision for. You know, and so natural circumstance can be manipulated by your enemy. He is the God of this world for the balance of this dispensation, this natural arena. All of the secular ideas and thoughts and Uh, You know, many of them are prompted by demonic influence. He controls the world. He is the God of this world until this age ends. You know, we hadn't got a lot longer to go in this age, according to the Bible, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, But at the moment, we need to be aware of how life is shaped, how our experiences are shaped, according to the Word. The enemy realizes that you have to choose death and cursing before you can be touched with it because you're a free moral agent. That's what God says. I place before you this day life and blessing, death and cursing. Choose life. It's His will, you choose life. But the choice is yours. God doesn't impose blessing on you no matter how much you pray for it. If you don't make decisions on a daily basis 
that the Word says aligns you with that blessing that is in Him. So the enemy realizes he can't bring darkness to your life, evil to your life, unless he can deceive you into making a choice for it. Nobody would choose it intentionally. Uh, it is a fact, therefore, uh, that the enemy can't defeat you if he can't deceive you. And the one prevention against deception is making the Word of God the final authority in your life. And so the enemy puts pressure on what you decided to believe, which should be the Word of God, and all of the different areas of human experience that it touches. And so he's going to, he's good at what he does, he's going to manipulate circumstance and unwitting people to say to you through those uh, conditions in the world that, you know, you perceive with your sensory perceptions, he's going to make it seem as if the word either doesn't work, isn't true, or this whole thing about God is a sham. Else, you know, said by the stripes of Jesus you were healed, you'd be healed. It says he takes pleasure not only in your health, but the prosperity of his servant. He wishes above all things that you prosper and be in health. So prosperity is a target. He works to keep you from experiencing the increase, God says, is yours as his covenant partner. And he does this to put natural circumstantial pressure on what you believe. And of course, the adversity that he brings uh, is defined by Strong's, first of all, as pressure, but then the word thalipsis actually uh, means trouble, tribulation, hardship, all of the negative things, the negative potential that a, that's out there in the world, you know, uh, that's what he uses. And so when it says in the word, uh, what we read in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he always makes a way of escape. It seemed appropriate to me to talk about how we identify that path of escape. And of course, he can perpetuate, the enemy can, can, can perpetuate the negative natural experience uh, as long as you are trapped in this place of not knowing what to do or how to get out of it. So we've been looking at things the Bible says about how you move your life down the way of escape from hardship, trouble, tribulation, persecution, whatever it is, uh, how you move your life down that path. We talked about the importance of waiting on the Lord, not getting impatient. We've talked about the signposts of peace, identifying the path you're being on is either right or wrong in order to experience escape from your circumstance. Uh, you know, what else have we talked about? We talked about the importance of focus in generating not only peace, but the contentment, uh, the assurance uh, the, that the Word brings you, generating an expectation of good instead of bad, really does relate to your focus. In other words, most of the Word of God in a general sense could be said to lead you down the path of escape. 
from the difficult challenges you follow. But there are points of emphasis that need to be made for our understanding to be enlightened. And I'm going to talk to you about the biggie today, I think. Uh, Well, there are a lot of biggies, you know. Uh, Faith is a biggie. Love is a biggie. Of course, there are a lot of uh, big things for us to consider in the Word. But if we're interested in dealing with the warfare that we have to deal with sometimes until we find that escape, uh, you know, it's important that we have a big picture understanding of what's going down. I'm going to talk to you today, maybe for two Sundays, about dealing with division. Dealing with division. Because it is the enemy's only possible strategy for keeping the larger plan of God from unfolding. You have absolute authority over your individual life. You know, whether division is a fact of your life or not, uh, you can still use your faith uh, in a variety of ways to appropriate some of the promises of God. But for you to have the effectiveness in this uh, global community we're a part of, uh, one of the most important lessons that we're going to have to learn is the significance of avoiding divided relationships. Now, there are some uh, relationships, the Lord says, need to be limited. With unbelievers, for instance, what fellowship hath Christ with Belial, light with darkness, or the believer with the unbeliever? None. But he still wants you to maintain relationships. The distinction between relationship and fellowship that's made both in the Word and in the Strong's Concordance is that fellowship involves a communion of heart. A spending time with somebody where their ideas can penetrate your life. Their viewpoints, uh, their ways of seeing and doing things can begin to shape what you think, even when you're not aware of it. The Word of God is the seed He wants planted in your heart. Secular, ungodly ideas are also seed that will produce their own brand of fruit that you don't want. And so, you know, when you allow yourself to be in a a relationship with an unbeliever that exposes you to a bombardment of ideas and perceptions that are secular and humanistic in nature, counter to the Word of God, you're planting the wrong kind of seed, and it will show up unless you take steps to deal with it. Well, you, you know, the first step you take with is not have fellowship with an unbeliever. But you want the relationship to be in place Because the love of God for you may be the only time they experience it. You may have a unique opportunity to speak into their life and bring them the light that they need. So you want the relationship intact. You don't want to avoid relationships with unbelievers. You want to avoid 
fellowship. Uh, but essentially, when we talk about division then in a more uh, specific sense, we're talking about dealing with division as a member of the church, the body of Christ. Because if that's present, nothing but destruction to your life can come. Let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 25 for a moment. I'm sorry, 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 25. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. Period. It doesn't matter what a man or a woman of faith you may be. If this is not an understanding that you have, then your life is going to be touched with some degree of consistency with desolation, it won't be able to stand whatever, whatever group you are endeavoring uh, or is part of your life. God has ordered your steps and certain people have become part of your life where division occurs. Then this is the only possible outcome. And so the enemy's only strategy for the larger plan of God that involves more than just your life is to create division. The contributors to division, you know, uh, we read about in the Word in many places, strife and contention and jealousy and envy, uh, unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment. Uh, There's a fairly long list. But they are contributors to division. And it's interesting to me that uh, we see this verse, uh, every kingdom divided against itself. Well, a kingdom would be analogous to America. So I think America's in a rather uh, precarious position right now. Even more so, I mean, people think about World War II and the catastrophe of having lost uh, uh, a malicious fascist, you know, fascism, fascism uh, being the result, and how, what a uh, destructive experience that would be. Uh, but really, if you look back at World War II, nothing brought our nation together in common cause like that natural threat to our nation's survival. And of course, when we come together in common cause, one heart and one mind, the power of God assures the outcome, assures the fulfillment of your prayer for peace. But essentially, you know, a kingdom divided against itself, I mean, I think we're in a worse place now than we were in World War II. Because it's a spiritual onslaught that is dividing America across political lines, across racial lines, uh, across uh, so many different lines uh, that we truly are divided against ourselves. And guess what the nation's only hope is? Us. 
the church rising up and taking their place in the plan of God and bringing the glory and power of God to bear in this earth. But it says we consider, I think this is important, that we consider division on a, an ascending or descending level uh, of consideration from the nation through the, uh, the city that we live in, Minneapolis, down to our house or the home. There is a correlation between your success in dealing with division with your spouse, with your children, and your ability to contribute to the elimination of division on any greater level. So we see that this is something that touches every arena of our life's experience. Truthfully, I think that most of the adversity that comes your way involves mismanaged or divided relationships. I truly do. I mean, first of all, you cut off a channel that God could use through another person to bring revelation, encouragement, ideas to you through to promote your best interests. You cut off those channels. 99% of the time, he uses people to bring his blessing into your life. And when relationships are divided, you eliminate that person as a possible channel for God's provision or blessing in your life. And then the reverse is also true. You open the door to the darkness that only the enemy can bring when division touches your life and when you allow it to remain. Because that's his strategy, his only strategy for winning over the agency God has put in the earth, which is the church. Well, let's look at the church first. And I'm not speaking about just living word. I'm talking about the body of Christ. Uh, but, of course, the local subdivisions of the body, the local church, are where, you know, there are actually feet on the ground that relate to your life and, and your condition of life. Uh, but let's, let's take a look at um, a different verse, Matthew 7, 15, for a moment, as it relates to the church. It says, beware of false prophets. So we know he's talking to the church. The word prophet means proclamation of the word. It's not just talking about an office of the prophet. But beware of those who falsely proclaim the word of God. And they are all over the place. It is so easy to build a new doctrine around two, three, four verses and take it out of the context of understanding that the whole counsel of God is intended to bring us. It is a, an unfortunate truth that many use the Word of God deceitfully in order to generate, you know, fame and fortune for themselves. And there are assignments that some individuals actually understand that are demonic. 
Satan's ministers that are doing uh, knowingly what they're doing. A lot of people are doing it not even aware of the, the danger and the damage to the plan of God, but Jesus said, Beware of those who falsely pr proclaim the word, which come to you in sheep's clothing, meaning they're never going to look bad because they're other sheep. They are other sheep. They're part of the body of Christ, or at least profess to be so. They look good. You know, in Romans 16, 17, we see the terminology used of good words and fair speeches being used by those who promote division and offense, contrary to the doctrine you've learned. Good words, fair speeches, they're going to sound good, they're going to look okay. You wouldn't judge, the, judge them as being a wolf. But inwardly, they are ravening wolves. I've taught on this a lot of times over the decades past, but I don't know of another time that it seems more significant to me that we, that we have these kinds of understandings. We know how wolf is used in Scripture. In John chapter 10, uh, we see that they come to scatter the sheep. And in the natural, you know, that is the way uh, a wolf hunts to break one off from the flock where he's easier to, uh, to consume, easier to defeat and consume. There's protection in the flock. And as a part of the flock, the shepherd is always there to bring defense. So, you know, a wolf seeks to divide the flock, scatter the flock, and then pick off individual sheep. And of course, this is the analogy that is being used here. Beware of false prophets. They're not going to look like a wolf, but inwardly, that's what they are. And then the next verse tells us, as we continue to move on, well, I'm waiting for my prompter to move on. <laughs> Just uh, try the next one. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clo clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. Okay, I'll go to the... This is why I always use the Bible anyway. Um, you shall know them by their fruit. Very basic. When it says beware of ravening wolves, understand that there's going to be many opportunities and some look very, uh, you know, unthreatening, non-threatening. I mean, obviously, this denomination has taught that for years and years and years. Or this group of people and this renowned radio preacher, but no, that's why you always read the Word for yourself. Because whether a, a wolf uh, is there by conscious design or mistake is irrelevant. The ultimate fruit of a wolf is to scatter the flock. 
well, so-and-so says this and so-and-so says that, so I'm just going to go over here. Someone else says, I'm going to go over here. And the flock is scattered. But at any rate, the fruit of a wolf is division. With that in mind, we can go to Acts 20, verse 28, and I'm going to read a few verses to you here. And this is Paul speaking to the elders of the church who are pastors. And you can know that because when it says to feed the church of God, the Greek word is poimain, or the verb form of the word poimano, I should say, which means pastor. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves. So he's talking to pastors now. And to all of the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed or pastor the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Take heed in what regard, the next verse says, for I know this, that after my departing, now Paul really uh, was you know, the, the instrumental individual who was involved in the launch and the growth of the New Testament church. And he said, when this season is past and I'm not here any longer, I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Meaning this is the enemy's strategy, to divide very plainly and simply. To divide the agency God has entrusted with bringing his rightness, his love, and his goodness into the world. And he said, they're going to arise speaking perverse things uh, to draw away disciples after them. And the next verse goes on to say, therefore watch and remember. Now somewhere I missed something. Okay, I'll turn there myself. It's not the, the, you know, the people that are running the prompter that are at fault. I'd hate to try to keep up with myself. Um, and there are different ways I jump around, but let me find Acts chapter 20. For I know this in verse 29, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock, also of your own selves shall men arise, per speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. So you see that uh, the wolf spirit can enter from without. There can be influences outside of the church that would have a divisive effect on you as a part of the church. You know, the media criticism we've received over decades of time, uh, you know, that's an outside influence that unfortunately, I know, has had an effect on some people. And, uh, you know, they have decided uh, that they would remove themselves. And then there are other times that the wolf spirit rises up from within. Somebody that starts drawing disciples after themselves. Someone who says, well, I don't agree with this part of the church doctrine. 
I think we should this, 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 this. And they begin drawing disciples after themselves, uh, away from the vision that God has granted or entrusted to that local church. So they can come from without, they can come from within. And if we were to take time to go to Romans 16, 17, uh, we would see the Apostle Paul say, mark them that cause divisions and offenses, someone being offended, you know, that's always the precursor to division. And that's why we're told to take no offense. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. But at any rate, uh, we see in Romans 16, 17, that uh, we're to mark them that cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine that you've learned. The word mark doesn't mean to publicly humiliate. It means to make mental note of, to distinguish. A mental distinguishing of something that's going down. That a particular individual is given, uh, given to strife, uh, conflict, uh, rabble-rousing, whatever the case may be. And then he goes on to say, uh, you know, after he makes mention of divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine you've learned, he says, and avoid them. Now, that does mean there are some people you're just going to need to avoid because they plant things in your heart and in your life that are going to have a divisive influence. I, I didn't really finish my thought earlier when I said that I believe most every adversity you experience has a, rela a relational element involved. You really can see this, whether it's a physical malady. It is a fact that stress and anxiety reduce the effectiveness of the human immune system. This is a scientific truth, and there is nothing more stressful, more hurtful, more painful than a relationship, especially one that was close to you, going down the tubes. It reduces the effectiveness of a person's immune system, opens them to disease they probably wouldn't experience otherwise. You know, I read an article not too long ago. Did you know that cancer happens in everybody's body? Everybody has got cancer cells at one time or another in their body. That's not a bad confession. You know, God created you so that a properly functioning immune system kills them. Cancer gone out of control has first had to overwhelm the immune system. And one of the greatest enemies that your immune system fights is the kind of strife and internal, division, uh, internal uh, upset that comes from division of close relationships and the, the stress and the, uh, you know, the onset of bitterness or resentment. It kills your immune system and then the cancer can have its way. But it doesn't matter what part of your life or what kind of adversity or difficulty you're experiencing, most of the time it's relationally related. And so, you know, 
there are some people you're going to need to avoid because they generally uh, are always critical, fault-finding, rabble-rousing. They are always taking the first steps toward division. And because of the effect that has on your life, it means you need to quit hanging out with them quite so much. You need to make yourself a little bit scarce. Every now and then somebody will say, well, I'm married to mine. You know, what do I do? Uh, well, well this, is a, this is a discussion for another day, I think. But, uh, uh, you know, it's not God's best for you that you divorce and that you leave him because, you know, he's always critical or bringing you down. Uh, I actually think, I've seen that verse a little differently in later times. It says to mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine you have learned and avoid them. It might not be the, the person you avoid, but the divisions and offenses that uh, you seem to get into when you're with that person. Avoid them. Avoid pushing one another's hot buttons. Uh, avoid talking about an iffy subject when you're at the end of your day and you're worn out and you're frazzled and you've got a short fuse anyway. That's not a good time to have a discussion. So it may simply mean if you can't avoid the person, and there's some people you do need to avoid, keep the relationship intact. The love of God still may be able to travel down you to them, but avoid them and don't let, you know, a communion of heart, sharing of heart begin to occur. Uh, but if you're married to them, then the first thing you avoid are the subjects and the issues that create division and offenses until the time is right uh, things are okay between you. Uh, things are friendlier. Nobody's tired and worn out and on edge. And I believe you'll know in your heart when you can broach the subjects. Because you have to eventually broach them if you're going to move toward concord and harmony. And that's our target. What's our target as believers? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Uh, now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be how many divisions? How many divisions? No divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Wow. You mean people can actually aspire to arrive at a place where their relationships are described as no division, perfectly joined together, same mind, same judgment? Yes, we can. And that's the thrust of, of, of the solution to the problem. We can. And when we're in that place, it's the place the Bible calls agreement or one accord. There's literally no ceiling on what God will do 
through relationships of this sort. Starting with the husband and wife, starting with the family, including the children, moving out into the immediate community you're a part of, and then further into the nation beyond. Yes, it's possible for that to occur through the power and the anointing that one accord brings. But this is the target, this is the goal. Question arises, how in the world can we get there? And I have done long series, series is series, series of teachings um, <laughs> regarding this. So I don't uh, anticipate being able to give a comprehensive overview in the next uh, 10 minutes, which is my goal to be finished if you're getting antsy out there online. But basically, uh, the truth of the matter is, there are so many ways the Bible says should typify our communication. Because that's the basis of our interaction with other people. Of course, the love of God would be a, uh, a one word generalization. When you love somebody, you're more concerned with their interest than you are your own. That completely destroys somebody else's defenses. You know, I used to be uh, uptight at the thought, well, if I just stick my neck out there and give to them, even though they deserve to be slugged, uh, you know, I just give to them and give to them and be kind to them and, you know, I'm just becoming a rug for their abuse. No, that's not the way it'll work out. If it does, the Lord will actually be involved in separating that relationship. But you always realize that loving somebody is the best way to begin bringing unity between people. But beyond that, you know, uh, or a part of that, the communication of truth has to be, how? In love. And so love involves communication but there's a way to communicate that will allow them to experience the love of God. And the Bible's filled with it, filled with instruction. James 1.19 says, be quick to listen, slow to wrath. A soft answer turns away wrath. Wow. So that says, shut your mouth, listen up, Find out what the root of their problem really is and whether or not there's a scriptural way to address it. And don't let your emotions become entangled. Give them a soft answer and it'll even turn away their wrath. Really good instruction. In chapter 3 of James, along about verse 17 or 18, uh, somewhere in there, it tells us uh, where envying and strife is, and these are the precursors to division. There is confusion in every evil work. That's how you can know that he can't promote evil works in your life. The kinds of adversity that many people have to deal with, if division isn't a part of it, or the strife and confusion that 
is always associated uh, with leading to division. And he goes on in the next verse and says this, uh, I suppose therefore, okay, No, that's a different one. That's in 1 Corinthians 7. Okay. Oh, brother. I got to figure out a better system. If I'm going to stand up here on the platform and try to do it this way. Um, let me go find James 3. Just hang on there. I can tell you another joke while I'm finding it. Here it is. Verse 16, we just read, for where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure. That means you don't have a motive to manipulate or intimidate. It's pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated. The Amplified says, willing to yield to reason full of mercy, we all need a lot of mercy, and good fruit without partiality, without preferring some people over others, and without hypocrisy, it being a principle that you live by. That's how communication succeeds. You know, I'm probably going to have to say something about marriage because marriage really does represent an obstacle to a lot of people uh, in finding a place of one accord, agreement, harmony with their spouse. And, uh, you know, it's, I don't know how in the world I'm going to do this in three minutes. Well, I won't do it in three minutes. That's how I'll do it. Uh, but I'll do it as quickly as I can. I really see marriage as being where you grow in your ability to relate to people in a way that produces unity instead of division. It's the toughest relationship of all because it's the person you live with and are closest to. And, you know, I, whether it's through personal experience I've got a wonderful wife, uh, but, you know, we're different. We are really different in a lot of ways. And she's put up with a lot of those differences when I could have or should have made some changes. But the challenge is that two people who live together, to be in a place of concord and harmony, can only come, as unity on any level can, when the Word of God becomes the foundation of our agreement. There are opinions that may have to be compromised that don't have anything to do with, you know, uh, you know what the Word says. Word, there are a lot of situations the Word doesn't specifically address. But if the Word is the foundation of your effort to generate agreement, then you'll be able to reach... Uh, the kinds of compromise that will be acceptable to both, and you can move on in the strength uh, of being unified. 
in your approach to life. You know, learning to get along with somebody, I think, begins with the marriage. And your ability to relate to people beyond the marriage in a way that produces that concord and harmony on a consistent basis, on a large-scale basis, your ability to do that really does bear a relationship uh, to your ability to come to a place of oneness in your marriage. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't exceptions, because there are. If you were unequally yoked when you got married and didn't know better, if you are someone who got saved but your husband or wife didn't after you got married, and there are just huge differences that you don't seem to be able to bridge, if there, you know, and there are some certainly scriptural uh, exclusions uh, from the need to stay married, that's always God's admonition. He doesn't say in the Word, you married the wrong person when you were too young and didn't know better. I've had people tell me we got married when we were both drunk. Can't we get a divorce? Well, go get drunk again. and you, you. Uh, But, you know, God can work with anybody that will allow him to work with them. He can take something that looks like it's just dead and resurrect it to newness of life that's better than it ever was before, you know? But then there are times that I think the word says divorce is appropriate. I mean, you know, that option is given for several things. You know, um, as a matter of fact, Moses said that the writ of divorcement was because of the hardness of someone's heart. Uh, It may not be both parties to the marriage. It may just be one party to the marriage who has hardened their heart against the Word of God, Uh, you know, or against, you know, um, moving toward uh, unified harmony in the relationship. One person just not going to do that for whatever reason. And so rather than staying in a relationship that that uh, kills the life experience of two people, then maybe a divorce is in order. Brother Hagin used to say, it's better to get a divorce and kill each other. Uh, and really, I've seen over 40 years a lot of uh, relationships where, <laughs> you know, that thought really crossed my mind. Uh, bad situations. Abuse. God doesn't expect anybody to stay in a, an abusive relationship. Now, I'm not talking some vague term, emotional abuse, although there, that can be real. Uh, more often than not, my experience has been that's used an, as an excuse by one party or the other. Uh, but it is a fact that physical abuse is not something... God requires anybody to submit to in the interest of staying married. Divorce is not a sin. It's not the best. 
God said your best shot at blessing is as a joint heir of the grace of God, husband and wife together, as heirs of the grace of God. But if you've gotten a divorce, that doesn't mean you're on the outside looking in. God's still going to work to bless you to the maximum degree possible. And, you know, um, depending on the situation that involved the divorce, uh, you may have given it your best shot. But, you know, it takes two to tango. uh, And it just didn't work out. God certainly, you know, this is not even a sin. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for a moment. I didn't want to do this because it has the potential of lengthening the message a little bit. But I want you to be mindful of this truth. Oh, no wonder I couldn't find it. That was Hebrews. Well, maybe they got it. Okay, yes. I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. I say that it's good for a man so to be. The present distress referred to in verse 26, is a uh, reference to all that went before. All of the things he said about uh, not getting a divorce or uh, not leaving your wife or wife not leaving her husband or not remarrying, all of those things are summarized right here. This is the context. It has to do, go back. I didn't, I don't want to move down yet. Uh, The present distress. And that was the persecution that the church was under in that day. Far worse than we can even imagine. Homes being invaded and looted and people <clears throat> tortured and killed, and destroyed. They actually had to come together in communes to bring the benefit of mutual protection to bear to some degree. I mean, it was a tough time. And Paul said, because of the present distress... You know, it's better for you not to be married. So, you know, uh, stay with your wife, stay with your husband. But if you don't, then don't remarry. Uh, Because it's better for the distress that we're under right now. The next verse goes on to elaborate. Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. You don't want to make divorce the, uh, the solution to whatever interpersonal upheaval you got going right now. But are thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife, or don't remarry. But then the next verse says this, but, and if thou marry. In other words, but if you are loosed from a wife, and if you marry again, thou hast not sinned. So understand that there is no sin in divorce. It is a provision that God made, but the church has the obligation of emphasizing the best route is to learn how to live with somebody, not just peacefully cohabit, but come to a place of agreement and harmony and unity. Then you've got something to contribute to larger groups. You've learned things that are important to be learned. And he goes on and says, 
uh, okay, let me see the next verse. No, 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 that verse. Go back. There we are. I didn't read far enough. It finishes up by saying it's not a sin, but nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh. It'll be painful. I've never known a divorce that wasn't painful, that didn't carry a lot of challenge in the natural arena. God's saying, even though it may seem bad being married to somebody, it's going to be worse if you get loosed from that wife or get loosed from that husband. Grass always looks greener, but he's saying there's going to be trouble that you wouldn't have bought into otherwise. It's not an easy thing. has a lot of ramifications for a lot of people. But if you've been divorced, it is important that you feel no condemnation. It is not a sin. God loves you just as much as he did when you were married. His word still will work in your life. Things can be good for you. You can actually, you can actually profit from hard places. Nobody wants to go through hard places. But there are things you learn and strength that is built in going through hard places that won't be built elsewhere. I encourage you. If you've experienced a divorce, make it your determined purpose that it puts you in a better place for God to use you in the future. So don't ever feel like a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God if you've gone through a divorce. But just understand, go to it with your eyes open. It's not God's recommended solution to interpersonal conflict. And if you engage in it, you are going to experience difficulties that would not have otherwise been true. But you can believe God through it, be strengthened because of it, and be even more useful to Him in the kingdom, experience an even greater degree of blessing down the road if you understand it that way. But it is vital that beginning with the marriage, we begin to put a premium on eliminating division and coming into a place of unity and one accord. It is vital that this be the case. It's vital for America. Well, it's vital, first of all, for the church. For the church to take the unity that families bring into it and build on it, and understand that the foundation of the agreement must be the Word of God. And as you build on that Word and move toward that priority goal of no division but concord and harmony, you are positioning yourself for greater and greater degrees of purpose and blessing in your life. This is where it all emanates from. If division is a part of your life, then you're going to be touched by desolation and destruction, according to the Word, whether it's the kingdom of God, the city, or the family. 